Well, again, good morning to my brothers and sisters who are here, and good morning to anyone who is joining us online. Also talking to my family who's joining us online, so good morning to you kids. And I pray that all of us who are here are prepared to hear from God's Word, and I also hope that, as I see that we're fairly full in here, I hope that many of you are excited to join together in a fellowship meal later this morning. I'm particularly excited because this is the first one that we've had in a long time, and from the earliest days of mankind, the breaking of bread together has been an a important event and an intimate event. Not idly did a person decide to share their table with someone else. It's no wonder that this became a crucial part of the ministry of the early church, sharing a meal. By agreeing to share a meal together, believers begin to see what it looks like to be a part of a family of faith. There's a reason why family mealtimes have become so important to so many families over the years as a, as a time to reconnect throughout our, our busy lives, and now we get a a chance to share a family mealtime together as well. And as we do so, uh, a bunch of different family traditions begin to emerge. The special church potluck recipes get dusted off. We're treated to special pierogies and amazing Filipino dishes and desserts and otherwise that we likely would never get to get to eat in our own situations. And we share the tastes and flavors and the variety of people that we have been blessed to call family. I don't mean to make too much of a deal out of this, but these meals begin to form a picture for us of Christ's church. Brothers and sisters from a huge variety of backgrounds, eating together, talking, equipping, growing, and encouraging one another in the faith, and generally taking time to do more than just go to church on Sunday morning. Needless to say, I'm very excited to see these meals reemerge post-COVID, and I pray they will continue to strengthen us as, as a church. And all this talk of us being family is important because it's central to our Christian faith. Scripture goes so far as to call us various parts of the same body. In 1 Corinthians 12, Paul says, for just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we are all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slave or free, and we are made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but many. It is in this way that we as believers are connected to the stories of these men and women that we've been looking at in our Hall of Fame of Faith in Hebrews 11. These men and women that we've been talking about are more than just good examples and lessons to us. They're family to us, our progenitors in the faith. This morning will be the first one in a while that we aren't starting with the words, by faith X, by faith Abel, by faith Enoch. Instead, our author of this letter takes a brief moment to drive home a point. So to interrupt his own thought, there must be something important to be drawn here that we should grab onto. So I ask that you would turn with me to Hebrews chapter 11. 
And we'll be looking at verses 13 through 16 together. Again, Hebrews 11, starting in verse 13. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had an opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Would you pray with me? Our God and our Heavenly Father, you have gathered your flock, your family, your body together here this morning. And in so many instances throughout our world, there are believers gathering both in the day past and the day to come, and today to worship on your Lord's day. To worship you in a way that brings you all honor, glory, and praise. And Lord, whether meeting in the Philippines or in the Middle East or the Ukraine or Africa or Europe or wherever it might be, Lord, your faithful who are gathered are part of one body. And we here this morning gather together as a part of that body, but in another sense, we gather as Elk Point Baptist Church, a local church that you have commanded us to be a part of. And we look around and we see our brothers and sisters and we are grateful for how you have gathered us. And Lord, we pray that you would continue to teach us what it means to be people of faith. People with sure conviction in your promises, O oh Lord. May we be a people who are seeking for our homeland. A better heavenly homeland, far better than anything that we could have here on this earth. Lord, I pray for our church that we would come to know you in a way that is beyond anything that we have experienced thus far. That we would continue to dive into your word, into who you are, and to know you personally. Lord, we continue to lift our governments to you. We live in a country divided, in a world divided, in a province divided, and we pray that in all of these things that you would give our leaders wisdom, knowing that you have installed these leaders for your own good pleasure and purpose. And Lord, we pray that you would help them to make decisions that would honor you. And God, that you would give us wisdom as, as your people, how to, how to best show honor and respect to those that you have placed over us, but that you would also make clear to us and our hearts and our minds, the areas where they step too far and they become contrary to your word. Lord, we pray for those who cannot meet with us this morning, those who are sick and stuck at home, those are who are recovering or not well enough to be able to travel. 
we think of our first responders and military members that can't meet with their local bodies, both here and around our nation. We think of our fire department, even as they're out on the fire this morning. We ask that you would keep them safe as they do what they do in an attempt to care for and protect those who need that. And Lord, we ask that in these first responder and military professions that you would bring light that these people who work in such darkness might know that you are the only hope and the only truth that has lasting power to save. God, we trust our service to you this morning. We trust each heart that is here that we might rest and rely upon you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So the opening words of our passage, these all died in faith. The immediate question that we have to ask ourselves is, who? Who are all of these? If you were, ask, you were to ask the jury of experts, the jury is not unanimous on this one. But I think that the pronoun here, these, is intentionally vague. The best scholarship seems to agree that at least immediately, these refers particularly to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, along with their immediate families. But I say that the pronoun's intentionally vague because even if it is speaking specifically of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, all of the patriarchs of Israel, every Old Testament believer, and even us today, all of us do in one way or another, or have in one way or another, died in faith if we believe. Because God's plan is not yet perfectly fulfilled in the way that we see it. But particularly, our forefathers in the faith, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they truly demonstrated what it was to have the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Because these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar. In today's instant gratification, drive-through, on-demand, high-speed world, I think that this concept is one that's hard for us to wrap our minds around. This idea of delayed gratification, of seeing something far off but not having it immediately available to us. I honestly think that as I look around, I see a, a growth in the desire for productive hobbies, ones that require time and effort to see a desired effect. Could a gardener go and buy a tomato at the grocery store? Absolutely they could. But to work and have faith that God would cause a tomato to grow on a vine that you planted and diligently cared for is a different caliber of satisfaction. For those of you who know me, you'll know that I am not a gardener. I have the blackest of thumbs. I leave the gardening to Sherry. But for those of us, to use a different example, for those of us who have been out and hunted elk, 
Um, the reality is that only somewhere between 10 and 15% of the people who get elk tags in a given year actually succeed in their hunt. Many tales of years of drought where tags keep going in the garbage. And the reality is, though, is that we hunt knowing that eventually we're going to connect with something if we persevere. Now imagine hunting for decades and even a lifetime never to take an animal. Gardening and never seeing a fruit or a blossom. Playing an instrument and never a measure of mastery. To my mind, this would be incredibly frustrating. I couldn't imagine thinking of my hobbies, the spending of hundreds and thousands of dollars and years of my life without seeing a positive result or outcome. And yet all these died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar. These men persevered, and they held on to a promise that had been given many years before for one reason, because they had faith. But how did they do this? How did their faith allow them to go entire lifetimes without seeing the promises that they'd received become fulfilled, all the while remaining faithful to the one who had promised? Yes, they did die in faith, not having received the things promised, but they also acknowledged something that we so often struggle with. They acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. Lately, we've been asking these questions of our text. How does this help us to understand true faith? And how does this turn our eyes towards Jesus? And until now, if you were asking those questions of our passage, you would have been left with a rather somber outlook. This idea of just perpetual anticipation with no fulfillment and no reason being given as to why. But if we understand this concept from the tail end of verse 13, that they were strangers and exiles on the earth, it gives form and hope to our current situation. But first, we must look at our original exiles in view, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They did acknowledge that they were exiles on the earth. For Abraham... There was a part of this promise that was given to him that was of incredible importance. This promise of a land. He was promised to become a great nation. But in order to become a great nation, you have to have a land called your own. Until then, you are simply a people within a nation. Verses 9 and 10 of Hebrews 11 tells us that by faith Abraham went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Never in the lifetimes of these patriarchs did they experience the rest in the promised land that they had hoped for. Instead, they acknowledged that until they received their new homes, they were to be exiles. Ultimately, 
Abraham hailed from Ur of the Chaldees, likely in modern-day Iraq or Turkey. Could that not have been seen as Abraham's homeland? That's where he came from. But it couldn't be called his homeland. Because the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you. At that moment, Ur ceased from being Abraham's home. From that moment on, his home and the home of his progeny would be the home that was promised by God, the promised land of Canaan. They could not go back because there was nothing for them to go back to because God has told them, this is your home now. And from then until the days of Joshua, under whom the Israelites finally took hold of the promised land as it was some four centuries or so later, the descendants of Abraham lived as exiles, having no home to return to, holding instead to God's promise. I had Dick read from John 15. Our Savior says to his people, If the world hates you, Know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, I chose you out of the world. Therefore, the world hates you. And then in his high priestly prayer in John 17, Jesus prays to the Father. Now I'm coming to you, and these things I speak in the world that they may have joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake I consecrate myself, that they may also be sanctified in truth. This should make clear for you and I the parallel between us here this morning and Abraham, our forebear in the faith. I said earlier that the pronoun used here was purposefully vague, and it leaves room for the inclusion of others in this original subject. And I'd find it hard not to find myself in this morning's passage. I don't know about you, but being a faithful Christian in today's world can very often leave us feeling like a fish out of water. As I was thinking about this idea of being a fish out of water, I stumbled on a perhaps a better example. The better example that I came across was that of a salamander. Maybe a strange example, but hear me out. For those of you that don't like lizards and amphibians, I'm sorry. But I've always loved amphibians. They're such unique creatures that God has created. But one of the most interesting things about particularly terrestrial salamanders is they're born as these water-dwelling larvae, complete with gills and the ability to swim. But as they mature, eventually there's this switch that happens. These aquatic creatures lose their gills and develop lungs, and from then on are completely terrestrial, completely land-based. 
They still need to live near the water to keep themselves moist, but they're no longer water-dwelling creatures. Indeed, they're actually just as at risk of drowning as any other terrestrial creature. That very medium that they used to live in, that they were born in, is now a deadly hazard to them. That sound familiar? We aren't fish out of water on the earth. We're salamanders. Our old home is no longer our home. We are now aliens and exiles to that land. If you have true faith and try to live as a Christian while being of the world, it will kill you. Our world will kill you. And that is where we live now. Living alongside the world, engaging with it, sent into it, depending on it for physical sustenance, but also at great hazard because of it. And that is why we have to be so incredibly cautious as to how we interact with our world. Because our Savior said, you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Our world hates you and is deadly poison to you. You can no longer breathe the same air that they breathe. Our world lives and breathes wickedness. This is the lifeblood of our world as given in a couple places in Scripture. 2 Timothy 3, people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Or take Galatians 5. The works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. These are just a couple of the several places in Scripture where we get a picture of what our world loves, and none of it is good. The things of this world are directly counter to the things of our new life. When you or I come to true and saving faith, it's like the salamander that loses its gills. We can no longer safely return to the home that we once knew. We are exiled and we, at the same time, enter into a new home. But what is our new home? Obviously, we still live here on planet Earth, surrounded by all of the realities that attend living in a fallen creation. For that answer, would you turn with me to chapter 2 of the book of Ephesians? Starting in verse 18. For through Christ we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, 
Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, we are told in Hebrews 11.9, we're looking forward to the city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God. And then in verses 15 to 16, if they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared them for them a city. These patriarchs, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the rest of the faithful from all history have been waiting for exactly what we experience the first fruits of today. Immediately, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are waiting on the promise of a homeland, of a national Israel. But ultimately, they're waiting on a homeland that supersedes that one, a heavenly homeland whose designer and builder was God. Brothers and sisters, if you have confessed Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you have been granted by God the gift of faith, then you know exactly where your new life is to be found. Your new life is to be found in the household of God. No longer do we keep trying to go back and to dive into this toxic cesspool that we are born into that has now become fatal to our souls. That place, that state has nothing left for us that is healthy or good. Instead, we now live a life in this new atmosphere that has been given to us by the Spirit. But we live in this already and not yet phase. We cannot leave the world behind entirely. I'm not arguing for some manner of docetism or Gnosticism that both of these are early heresies that sees the, the flesh and the physical as being inherently evil and the spiritual as being inherently good and having to leave behind all the physical trappings of this world. We do not leave behind this world because you and I, by God's sovereign will and design, live in this, in this physical world. That's why when Christ prayed to the Father, he said, I do not ask that you take them out of the world but that you keep them from the evil one. And then he goes on to say, I have sent them into the world. You and I, we live in this world for a reason. A good saying that arises out of Jesus' prayer is that we would be in the world but not of the world. While Abraham and Isaac and Jacob lived, waiting in faith for their promised homeland, I don't think they just sat back and twiddled their thumbs and waited for God to create them a, a new land. They lived, they worked, they obeyed God, and they did everything in their power to pave the way for the fulfillment of God's promises. I can't imagine that Abraham waited for a divine green light to try for a child while he and Sarah hoped for a son. In the establishing of a nation and the taking of a land, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob were active participants. And God has determined to use his faithful believers 
and to use the faithful action of such believers in the accomplishing of his plan. You and I have the incredible blessing this morning to, if we have placed our faith in Christ, to actively participate in God's redemptive work. That is why we go. That is why we share the gospel. That is why we build churches. That is why we have families and teach our families of the gospel. And that's why we must live lives that are tangibly different from the lives of those that surround us. We do these things not just because we're commanded to, which we are, but we do so because we must. To live in, and to act in a way that is changed from our old carnal self is in itself the required evidence that we have been saved. Maybe I'm beating a dead horse here, but how do you tell if a salamander has matured? Well, for the terrestrial breeds, it's that they now live their life on land, breathing air. It's not a hard definition to make. Either they are or they aren't. And it's not hard for us to make an educated calculation as to whether or not a person has saving faith because their lives will display it. We are not the judge or the arbiters of salvation. I can't tell you, yes, you are saved, or no, you are not. I am not in charge of that. But as we look at our own lives, and as we look at the lives of our brothers and sisters of whom we are told to encourage and exhort and give an account, it's not hard for us to see the people who are displaying obvious signs of spiritual life. We can look into a person's life and see that their life has been changed by the gospel. But on the flip side, it's also not hard for us to look into a person's life and go, where is the fruit? They're in the pew or on the chair on Sunday, but their life displays nothing of the fruit of a believer, and where is it? But for those who have been granted saving faith, their lives will display it. Their old home is dead to them, and their new home is in Christ. And their hope is found in the promise of an even greater revelation of Christ in the new heavens and the new earth. As we wrap up, I wanted to remind you of the promise that is coming in Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. 
And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Skipping down to verse 22. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord, God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They'll bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. This is the promise that we this morning look forward to. This is the promise that we today have just a taste of. Just enough to make us want more. And ultimately, this is the promise that Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and every faithful believer across all of eternity have looked forward to. We look forward to the age where all rot and decay that has been brought by sin will be no more and we will be with God and he will be with us. We will be his people. How then does this morning's passage help us to deepen our faith? It does so by reminding us that while we may taste pieces of the promise in this life, the fullness of the promise awaits us and it is more than worth waiting for. We must live by faith because this world is not our home. We will not find our ultimate fulfillment here. And if we are looking for a fulfilled life here, based on what we see here, we will be disappointed. But if we are fulfilled by knowing the promise will be fulfilled in eternity, that is an entirely different thing. And how do we find our eyes turned towards Christ? We look to Christ as the only way to enter this new Jerusalem. For he is the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except by way of the Son, who came to the earth and lived and died and rose and reigns and will return to judge the living and the dead. So, brothers and sisters, Follow the example of our spiritual forebears and the patriarchs. Live in the world as strangers and exiles. Do not build roots and foundations that tether you to the things of this earth. Instead, find your roots in the household and in the promises of God, living as fellow citizens with God's people. I love that we're hearing this message on a Sunday where we get to go from here downstairs to share a meal together with our family, where we get to share a meal together with fellow brothers and sisters who recognize 
that our home is not in the world. And I pray that our conversations and our interactions downstairs will reflect that. It's great to have our conversations about day-to-day life, but I pray that even as we discussed in our prayer meeting earlier this morning, that even as we discuss mundane things, things that maybe aren't inherently spiritual, our hobbies, our interests, our whatever it might be, that in some way or another that our eyes might be turned towards God, that we might remember that what we do here on this earth ultimately has eternal value in how it glorifies our God. Then as we go from here, we also, if we know anyone who is in danger of perishing, and indeed we should know people who are in danger of perishing, just a sidebar, we in the church are very good at getting stuck in our church bubble where the only people that we really build relationships and really spend time with are other Christians. And all of a sudden when we're told to evangelize, be like, well, I don't even know who I'd go to. Except maybe Uncle Joe who thinks that religion is a bunch of hubbub. But we should be developing intentional relationships with people who do not know Christ, that we might share Christ with them. That we might do everything we can to awaken their hearts to the mortal danger that comes with living a life that is contrary to the commands of Scripture. And we do so with much prayer, knowing that ultimately, not a single thing you say or a single thing you do can save anyone. But even the smallest thing you say and the smallest thing you do can be used by God to set a person on the course to salvation. Only God can replace the heart of stone with a heart of flesh. But we are still commanded to go. So I pray that as we go downstairs, that we would speak and talk and bring joy and encouragement to one another and that we might find ourselves revitalized and refreshed by this retreat into God's house, into his word and with his people, that we might go forth from here ready to share his truth with those that we see, whether it be close people or people we just meet and have the opportunity along the way. We'll ask that our worship team would come to lead us in a closing song. After that, we'll pray. I'll also pray for the meal that we will share downstairs immediately following the service. Let's pray. Our God and our Heavenly Father, we know that the life of an exile is not a life of ease. But this is what you have called us to. You have called us to live as exiles to the world and as citizens of your kingdom. 
Lord, may we not be discouraged when we feel like exiles in our world. May we be encouraged to know that this is exactly what we have been called to. And may we find ourselves rekindled and revitalized as we come together with our brothers and sisters in the faith. That we might be encouraged and built up as we come to your word. Knowing that our new home is found only in you. God, may we resist the temptation to have one hand on both. We do not get to choose, O oh Lord, and we ask that you would help us to sever the, the connection, the tether that has bound us to this world. That whatever it might be from our old life and our old self that seems to continue to draw us back and to call us back into old ways and old habits and old desires, Lord, that we might put that to death that we might be killing sin constantly, that we might pursue you. And Lord, may we strengthen and encourage one another. May we keep our eyes upon one another and be ready to bear one another up and even call one another to account as is necessary, Lord. That we might see one another, our brothers and sisters, in this new heaven and new earth that you have promised us. Lord, we pray that you would send your Son to come again soon, that we might see the day where we can worship you in reality, face to face, that we might know you the way that you know us, We look so forward to that moment where we can say that you dwell with us, that you are our God and we are your people, and that we might see it and know it to be true. That our faith becomes sight, O oh Lord. God, as we go downstairs and spend time in a meal with one another, we thank you for each one that has prepared the food. We ask that you would bless these hands that have prepared the food and the encouragement that it is to know that we have so many gifted brothers and sisters willing to share with us the, the food of their households. And may you guide and direct our conversations, bless the food to our bodies, and bless our conversations. Lord, we thank you for all these things and pray them in Jesus' name.